just recapping very briefly some of what we've uh, talked about so far. Um, mentioned uh, with regard to the use of the imagination in Dharma practice and other traditions and psychotherapeutic traditions, etc. <clears throat> the range, really, of directions, of flavors, and also of conceptual frameworks that support that use of the imagination. There's quite a range possible, and just looked very briefly mentioned some of them. And then also added that given that range, and when one practices a little bit with images and explores a little bit, one comes to see that actually what's most interesting and most significant um, about imaginal practice is the conceptual framework that we're bringing to bear, that we're creating, if you like, to support um, imaginal practice, and because that's what directs it in certain dire this direction or that direction, it's what opens it up, it's what uh, gives it depth and amplifies it. So it's actually the conceptual framework rather than the images themselves that are most interesting and significant. And again, there's a range of conceptual frames, and I really want to emphasize that it's up to you how you how much of this material you take, where you land with conceptual frameworks, it's really up to you, and how, how much and, and how you use uh, images in your practice. That's very much up to you. And having said that, I also shared some of my, uh, if you like, deeper aims for this retreat. So wanting to just be open about that. And we also talked just a little bit of sort of very brief overview of the sort of cultural history uh, that over millennia, in fact, uh, has given rise uh, to the dominant view of our culture, the sort of uh, the view that most people share about reality and, by extension, about Im imagination and images and what place that has and what place they don't have, etc., and some of that may sound a little academic, uh, historically ac ac academic history or something, but it's important because those events, those decisions, these uh, debates that happen, perhaps, you know, you think, well, that's very uh, abstract or uh, it's part of the cultural elite, that, that filters down and becomes the common view over time, and that's what we inherit, and that's what we walk around in, and that's what... Uh, saturates, if, if you like, permeates our consciousness. So it's quite difficult to move out of that, to even realize the force that it has and the limitations that it has on consciousness, on experience, uh, and on the sense of existence. You mentioned too that some are not okay with that and uh, with that dominant view. They feel the limitations of it, intuit or consciously recognize the limitations of it and the, uh, if you like, n the, the fact that it's not necessarily a, a final truth. And they recognize uh, the possibility, they feel a calling, they recognize perhaps the necessity of um, opening something up 
further with regard to the imagination and the use of the imagination. Um, because of what it does, we mentioned, um, in, with regard to the sense of self and the range of self experience, the range of self-view and self-sense, and how much that's maybe needed uh, in these times. Uh, also because of what it opens up in the range of experience and the range of the sense of what is beautiful and what what is holy. That whole range of what we regard as, as uh, beautiful and holy, divine if you like, <clears throat> uh, that sometimes people feel that is already wanting to expand. They feel that expansion, they feel that calling, they feel that necessity. And with all that, there is, and for me, what I'm perhaps most interested in, even above and beyond the use of the imagination, is can we expand? Can we expand our felt sense, our felt perception of the range of of sacredness, of what is sacred to us, um, and our, our felt sense of the sacred? Can that expand beyond either not existing at all or beyond a quite um, narrow limitation that was somehow given to us by the culture? And through that, with that, is there a possibility for us to re-enchant the cosmos? The cosmos of... um, we've inherited from modernist thinking is a very flat cosmos of materiality. I'm going to talk more about this. Is, Is there a place for the skillful use of the imagination that actually does something, opens up something, deepens something, enriches something in our very sense of existence and the world, the cosmos that uh, we live in. So I want to say a bit more now uh, about, uh, particularly about some of what we'll be exploring in terms of directions in the retreat and also um, the kind of conceptions that run alongside the practice, supporting practice. Some of what I'm going to talk about, just mentioning it tonight, it, it probably won't make complete sense. That's okay. We're going to just throw it out there. It's a little um, signpost, if you like, of where we're going, uh, signpost of where we're going, and also just to plant a seed. It's like, oh yeah, that's a piece that I want to understand. Um, so if you get to the end of the retreat and listen to this uh, introductory talk again. It's like, oh yeah, that piece and that piece and that piece. So we'll mention things uh, now and then we'll revisit them, elaborate on them over the days. So you know, given this uh, cultural history and what is really the dominant view in our uh, society, in our culture regarding uh, the imagination, to try uh, to kind of revalidate, if you like, give validity and importance again to imagination or certain kinds of imagination, certain kinds of use of the imagination again um, in the culture for ourselves, for our practice, to open space and place for imagination that's actually wider and probably more far-reaching 
than some of the ways it's used, say, in typical psychotherapy, psychotherapeutic uses these days. To open space and place and respect and validity for that, wider and more far-reaching than it has uh, so far. To actually reintroduce or revalidate the idea of some uses of imagination as ways of knowing something quite subtle and profound. So we tend to think, we, when I have knowledge of something, I know I'm looking at a table. And how do I know that that's true? Well, I can kick it. I can uh, ask a hundred other people. If 99 people agree it's a table, at least that's good enough. And, and then I know something. I know something that's real. And perhaps I can measure it. And uh, such uh, factors give us a sense of knowing. It's an imagination. That's not a way of knowing. But what is it? This question I referred to before, epistemology. How do we know anything? What is knowledge? What does knowing mean? That needs to be opened up for us. It's quite subtle and quite profound. So that is there a kind of knowing that's different than the uh, commonly agreed upon meaning of what and range of what knowing is. So if something is just person, just me that sees this image, is that can that still be? Can I open up my idea of what knowing means to give more respect to imagination in some cases, with some usages, so it becomes uh, has its avenue as a it forms an avenue as a way of knowing. So to do that, to open up that space a space and place for some use of the imagination way of knowing and to map out and differentiate all the different kinds of uh, image that arise the aspects of imagination levels of imagination if you like the directions all of that you know what is for example just the flotsam and jetsam of the mind what is just daydreaming what is memory and the coloring of memory through image and fantasy what is what's called ESP, extrasensory perception? Uh, what's uh, archetypal image? What is the whole range uh, of falls into mystical experiences that are possible in terms of perception of self, other, world? And what is uh, this opening, Corbin uses this phrase, the mundus imaginalis, Latin for literally means the world of the imagination. We can say the imaginal realm, the realm of the imaginal. So differentiating, mapping out all that and all the nuances and all the subtleties of all that. Uh, to do that, to open up space and validity for imagination as a way of knowing and to place all that in a larger coordinated uh, philosophy and psychology that does explore this question of reality and opens up the the exploration of reality. Is it just yes or no? It's real or it's not real? Are there more subtle shades philosophically uh, and ways we can open up that whole question of what's called ontology, the study of what's real? And as I said, as well, the, the study of epistemology. All this needs opening up, if, or to do that, to place it in that philosophy, uh, which includes ontology, epistemology, cosmology, the sense of the cosmos. That would be a huge task, absolutely huge, to revalidate it, to bring it in as a way of knowing, to give it respect, to map it out, to differentiate, to coordinate a much larger 
more open philosophy. So I actually don't know anyone um, after the scientific revolution who who has even attempted to do that. Um, I mean, I, I could be I just don't know them. I, I, I'm not aware. There have been certain people like Goethe, the poet, the German poet, and Coleridge, also a poet, Jung, of course, Owen Barfield, the English philosopher of the 20th century, uh, apparently Rudolf Steiner, I don't know any of his works, so I'm not sure, I heard indirectly, Ed Casey, the philosopher, American philosopher, Richard Tarnas, a little bit, sort of uh, cultural philosopher. All these, in uh, their way, have added a little to this quest. And in Tibet, Mipam um, Rinpoche, a great, uh, great sage of um, Nyingma, uh, the Nyingma tradition in Tibet, um, I think in 1908 or 1912 or something like that, um, the very beautiful and sophisticated philosophy bringing emptiness and tantra together in uh, and the whole question of reality and levels of reality. I'm not sure how much by that time the sort of scientific revolution had reached Tibet or how much that was integrated in his thought. There have been people who have done this, and I wonder now, and I wonder for this course and this retreat, can we add a little? That means you and me in our explorations and discussions Perhaps we can add even a little bit, if that's not too grandiose an idea, to this movement and expansion and opening and exploration. You and I, together, talking, sharing our experiences. Um, Is it possible that we can add to this opening movement? One thing that's quite uh, perhaps necessary is... uh, or at least what is possible, is that we can, if you like, elbow more room, more space, and more respect for uh, skillful and nuanced, sophisticated use of the imagination, so that it's less immediately dismissed, so that uh, at least there's a larger willingness to admit that maybe imagination is important for us. Maybe that it needs including in our psychology, in our sense and view of what the self is, and our self as an experience, in our philosophy, in our worldview, in our whole idea about so-called reality. So elbowing a little more room to, to include that, and as I said, to um, give it some respect uh, as a way, or really ways of knowing, different forms of imagination as ways of knowing, involved in as particular ways of knowing. So one way we can do that, and that's possible, is by actually turning around and exposing, questioning, critiquing the assumptions of the dominant culture, what I call the modernist metaphysics, that are, as I said, usually often hidden, not even fully conscious, and very rarely uh, questioned. We can expose, question, and critique those assumptions that run in our, almost in our blood, uh, in the blood of our minds these days. So we can do that without reverting to a kind of simplistic primitivism, trying to go back to the Stone Age sort of thinking or um, some other culture from uh, centuries, millennia, millennia ago, without reverting also to a kind of naive religious 
fundamentalism or naive New Age fundamentalism. So I've uh, myself spoken and written just a little bit about this uh, in different places uh, with respect to nature, with respect to the self, with respect to the Dharma and other things. And coming at it from different directions, uh, either through Dharma understandings of emptiness, uh, deep Dharma understandings of emptiness, or uh, through more uh, recent sort of openings in Western philosophy, postmodernism, poststructuralism, that sort of stuff, even some of the uh, openings from modern physics of the last sort of uh, hundred years or so. All of which I and, and other people find fascinating, really fascinating to explore. And actually it's very important, very important to bring a more sophisticated philosophy in, I feel. And what's interesting to me, what's very interesting to me, is some people need that to kind of legitimate, legitimize for themselves uh, imaginal practice. To open the doors for them. They need this kind of uh, elbowing of, of space, uh, creating more space uh, philosophically. And some people don't need it at all. And actually, they're not even that interested in it. So that's also quite interesting in itself, why some people do, why some don't. On this course, on this retreat, I'm actually not going to go too much into all that philosophy stuff. Um, what I want to emphasize more is practice and really getting into practice with certainly with some of the conceptual stuff, but not so much a critique of the dominant view as uh, opening up, up other possibilities conceptually and really emphasize the practice more and see what does that open for us in terms of our experience and then in terms of our view. So in terms of practice um, and what we'll be doing, just want to make clear uh, as, as we practice and as we talk about a lot of this, um, what I'm not doing, what we're not doing is, uh, this is not gestalt psychology, it's not psychosynthesis, it's not focusing, it's not... Uh, uh, drama therapy, psychotherapy of drama therapy, or art therapy, it's not voice dialogue work, it's not chud, if you know that Tibetan practice. You may feel, and it does actually have some common aspects in terms of techniques uh, with the, those modalities and those ways of working. But, again, what I'm going to emphasize is really differentiated primarily from those kind of uh, uh, directions by a different kind of conceptual framework regarding the images, uh, imagination, regarding the self, including emptiness, and regarding also cosmology, the sense of what is, how are we looking at, and what are we uh, conceiving or and perceiving of the world, of, of the cosmos. So it might have some aspects in common, but it's actually differentiated a lot by the different conceptual framework underlying it. So I'm interested, I said this before, I'm interested in the more usual conceptual frameworks regarding images and all those modalities, uh, healing modalities, etc. mentioned earlier. But I'm also a little bit, if you like, more interested in more radical, what we could call more radical conceptual frameworks. I mentioned this earlier. So there's, let's just highlight three areas of that right now. 
One is regarding the self. We touched on this earlier. Um, but what is it to, what would it be to really include a th- thorough sense of the emptiness of self? And then within that, or with that, to really expand the sense of the self. I don't mean in some kind of expanding oneness. I mean in a plurality. And expand the range of the self. Not to integrate what we see in some imaginal characters or subordinate them to some central sense of self. But actually to expand radically um, with together with a view of emptiness and to turn something around in our relationship of the self to the imaginal figures, or sometimes called daemons, D-A-I-M-O-N-S, and the kind of relationship with them, and the sense sometimes of what they're asking of us, instead of these figures serving the self, and serving the so-called growth of the self, or the journey of the self to what awakening, or whatever it is, enlightenment, full potential, all very valid, but what is it to turn that around in terms of the direction of service? So that's one aspect. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. A second aspect, and I've, again I've mentioned this before, is the realization, the dawning, that fantasy image, mythos, is already permeating our lives, already our lives, it's already functioning, it's already there, and this is not bad, it's not a bad thing, so the word fantasy has a very bad press, in certainly in uh, the Dharma scene for the most part, but what is it to realize that it's already operating, already there in our lives, and that's not a bad thing, we just need to realize it. And it's already operating as well uh, in relation to uh, our sense and conception and vision uh, and our very feeling of what the Dharma is for us. So when we realize that, that pervasion already of fantasy image mythos in our life, and that pervades also our sense of the Dharma, then that does something to our very sense of the Dharma, eventually. It puts it on a different ground. And what then does the Dharma become? Is there another way of conceiving the Dharma, given that realization? So that's the second uh, aspect of the more radical conceptual framework. And the third is uh, a word, uh, what I call cosmopoesis. So... C-O-S-M-O-P-O-E-S-I-S. And I'm going to talk more about this as the retreat goes on. But this really has to do with, if you like, using the imagination to open up the very sense and perception of the world that we live in, including the material, very much including the matter itself. And through the imagination, we realize that in a way there's, uh, poesis means creating, uh, like poetry, like making poetry. There's an art to that perception and a malleability to the uh, perception of the cosmos. So all three of those, I'm mentioning very briefly some things we're going to return to, as I said, some some key words and concepts we're going to return to. I just want to mention them now, as I said. So, all these, whether regarding the self, regarding the pervasion of fantasy and what it means for the Dharma, 
and regarding this, what I'm calling, we're going to call cosmopoesis, this sense of the cosmos, um, all of that includes uh, the uh, importance and the nourishing, if you like, the feeding of a sense of soulfulness. And I'm going to, that's another word I'm going to explain more, what it means as we go, but it's really talking about meaningfulness, resonance, depth, beauty. These, these things are part of soulfulness for us. And we can also talk about soul making. So again, I'll, I'll come back to this in much more detail. But this is very much involved in the conceptual framework of, uh, of, of what I want to emphasize over these days. And that uh, taking care of the soul through feeding and nourishing, giving attention to a sense of soulfulness, the soul-making, that um, either will open up the sense of imagination as a way of knowing, or it already requires a kind of uh, entering into a trust of the imagination as a way of knowing. So those two aspects are also related to each other. Okay, so just to very briefly fill that out a little bit, what we're talking about here. So, so one of the aspects of the conceptual framework that I want to open up a little bit is regards to the self. I want to... Is it possible to, uh, through the use of imagination in different ways, to expand the notion and the sense, the actual experience of self and other? So when I say self, I don't mean just myself, I mean the selves of others. Expanding the notion, the sense of self and other. So that we come to... Uh, we can feel and know the self as more than uh, a, a, a result of uh, neurological genetic causes or accidents. It's fine to view the self that way. It's a mode of, of viewing, a mode of seeing the self. But is it possible to actually uh, expand the whole notion of self way beyond that? And way beyond seeing the self as a result of past conditioning in terms of family, culture, education, etc. And also beyond a view of self that would uh, quite popular in the Dharma these days, saying the self is just a process, it's just a process. All there is is process. And certainly beyond all that, but beyond too a kind of concretized or, or tight identification of the self with anything, any image or self-view or belief. So can we, through the use of imagination, expand the very sense, the very notion and view of self and other beyond all these? So it can include all that at times, fine, but, but actually radically beyond all that. Part of what helps is a Dharma understanding that the, the self, this self, other selves, are, is empty totally, thoroughly and totally empty. Which means much more in Dharma language, I would say, than to say that the self is a process of the aggregates in time, process of psychophysical constituents. To say that it's empty totally is saying something much more thorough and profound than that. And uh, realizing too that because the self is thoroughly empty, the 
perception of the self and the sense of the self is malleable. It's something that we can shape through and with the imagination. It's thoroughly empty, thoroughly deeply empty, and it's malleable, this sense. But going beyond too, is it possible to expand the notion of, of uh, the self, of the sense of the self, way beyond the, the, the sort of typical humanistic uh, notions of, of self and personhood? As I mentioned, in Western culture, modern Western culture, and also in Dharma culture, where there's a kind of poverty uh, we have regarding notions and attitudes to, to the personality and personhood. Strange and, and quite, uh, in, in some ways, self-contradictory. But there's a kind of flatness uh, there. Uh, we flatten a little bit personality. And in a way we flatten the possibilities for a sense of meaningfulness regarding the self and regarding the selves of other. And this, one of the ways of really opening that up in a very beautiful directions is through the imagination. And through that, actually, what's quite interesting is that there can be then a place again. We open up the possibility for re- including perhaps even a sense of divinity. That's another word that I'm going to throw out now and explore more, expand on more, elaborate more as the retreat goes on. But is there a place for divinity in the self, through the self, this self and the selves of others? Can I open up that experience? And that kind of divinity, the kind of divinity I'm talking about right now is is a divinity in and through the personality. So that's different uh, because it's particular. It's particular to this being or that being or the face that this being or that being is showing right now through my perception, through my imagination. It's particular. It's different than a kind of divinity that is just sort of homogenous, like all is one. Everyone is part of the same oneness, the same one divine substance or whatever you want to call it that per- pervades the universe. That's beautiful. And I'm talking about something different now. It's not just universal, it's very particular and personal as well. So again, we're going to get much more into this. But with that, there is also, as I mentioned before, a possibility for the whole sense of what is divine or holy to be stretched to expand so that we can allow a wider range. We can actually see and feel and sense a wider range of what is included in in what divinity looks like and how it expresses. There are other gods, if you like, if we put it that way, apart from the ones that we are, uh, if you like, educated to see as divine, as holy, as sacred, this or that. We'll get into this later. But all that is part of the second thing, second aspect of the more radical conceptual framework I mentioned before. is part of a, a sense of expansion of the Dharma and our sense of what the Dharma is. Now that's quite interesting, even if I use that word expansion. How am I going to relate to this? 
Am I, are we stretching and expanding the Dharma? Is that, is that what we're doing here? Is that what the movement's going on? Are we fudging it and just trying, and kind of saying, oh, this is what the Buddha said anyway, this is what he meant. I'm not expanding anything, I'm just being historically accurate. Are we radically undermining the Dharma, perhaps? Are we regrounding it? So how even are we imagining that we're conceiving the relation of all this to the Dharma? Again, something I'll come back to later on in the retreat. I mean, these are big, uh, big, delicate and subtle, uh, complex as well, um, streams of what we want to get into. Now included in that, in terms of a sort of opening up of the Dharma and extending um, our sense of the Dharma, is that we're also extending or altering for some people our conception of um, the Four Noble Truths, what's so central to Dharma practice, this um, teaching of suffering and ending or at least reducing suffering. And instead, using that teaching around suffering, instead of as um, a sort of teaching that, in shorthand, says something like, try and live a life of non-clinging. Instead of that, uh, we want to include something, uh, a different conception of what, that, of what the Four Noble Truths are, um, rather seeing them as keys. Uh, or rather that, that teaching itself as a, a key that we can use to examine perception, meaning examine appearances, examine experiences, and see how that opens up. It, it invites a way of exploring perception, which reveals the emptiness of perception, the emptiness of appearance, the malleability of appearances and experiences. And through that, we're widening the range of possible ways of looking, uh, widening the range of uh, ways that we can perceive and experience and therefore live. So we're not locked into a Dharma uh, view or attitude or attempt to live seeing everything as a process or trying to be in the now um, or just be mindful or something as if that's uh, kind of the Dharma way or that everything's impermanent, which seems so obvious, and trying not to cling, trying even uh, to... Um, see everything as one. It's quite popular. So we're widening the whole range of perception and possibility of perception, possibility of experience through uh, an investigation of perception. And that's a different way of understanding what the Four Noble Truths are. Again, we'll return to this, and and something else we'll return to too. I'll say I'll, say, I'll mention it now, though, is um, regarding this sense of the cosmos or experience of the cosmos. We is it possible that that expands? That our sense of the world we live in expands, and instead of being just a world of flat materiality. Uh, devoid of meaning, devoid of deeper echoes and uh, what I would call a vertical dimension. That's another uh, 
theme I'm going to come back to, another concept I'm going to come back to, that the sense of the cosmos, uh, if you like, is enriched and it's a vertical dimension is allowed through the imagination, through the conceptual framework. Because the typical modernist view is a flat, one-dimensional, material cosmos. We'll come back to that. So there's a few things here, just to summarize, where recognizing that image, fantasy, mythos permeates our lives. This is key. We recognize that we see, we experience um, a lot of the time through image, through fantasy, through mythos. We think also through image, through fantasy, through mythos. And we love through image, fantasy, mythos. So we see, think, and love through image already, through imagination already, recognizing that. That's huge. And this beginning to recognize, too, uh, an aspect of our experience, a dimension of our experience, which I'm going to call the soulfulness, this uh, aspect of meaningfulness, of depth, of resonance, of kinds of beauty, and much more. And really beginning to include that, to take care of it, to nourish the soulfulness. And through that is a kind of extension of the range of um, how we see the self. Uh, an extension of the range of what we consider beautiful, what we feel beautiful, what we feel as meaningful. Giving place to more and more. And also this idea of giving back a validity to the imagination or certain uses of the imagination as ways of knowing that the, everything that's involved in that. And through that, uh, to re-enchant uh, the perception of the self, of other, of cosmos, to perhaps open up a sense or an allowing for a sense of divinity there, and what I'm going to call the vertical dimension. So expanding the range of the sacred, and through all this, uh, perhaps, probably opening up, uh, and maybe even changing the relationship with what we consider dharma. So I'm not, as I mentioned, talking about Chud on this retreat. I'm not actually teaching Tantra in the, in the way that it's usually thought of. Um, though there is much overlap in the kind of things that we'll be talking about. And I will m talk about Tantra a little bit and the connections, etc., a little bit. Um, but given what I've said so far, it's really asking, we're really asking for open-mindedness. Um, in the way that you approach this material and and also in the way we listen. And listening is quite an interesting uh, avenue of experience. Sometimes we listen and, and we listen to something and say, oh, I already know this. It's the same as something I already know. And we kind of put it neatly in a box of something where, oh yes, it's it's psychosynthesis. Oh yes, he's talking about focusing. So oftentimes we listen for the similarities and we kind of shrink something uh, that's 
maybe quite new or different and shrink it into a box that we already know. We actually miss um, what's new and different and potentially stretching or challenging. So is it possible as you're listening over the days to, to listen in fact deliberately for the differences? Listen for what's new and what's different from what you already know and the boxes that, uh, that you might already have um, regarding imagination. So we tend to listen in a way that affirms what we already know um, rather than um, challenges us or opens up our frameworks. So open-mindedness and openness of listening is, is probably really necessary on this retreat. And just to say a little bit more about that in regards to the Dharma and how we conceive of and relate to the Dharma. So it would be very understandable um, if someone listening has a kind of loose conception of the Dharma, maybe haven't really articulated it, a loose conception of the Dharma as involving sort of uh, something like, well, the Dharma says, try to always be present, uh, and because this is it, this life is it, this moment is it. There's nothing else. This is what's real, and we don't want to miss it. So you want to be present to it. So the Dharma, we might think, or we might conceive of the Dharma saying, try always to be present, because this is it. And in addition, this conception of the Dharma, popular conception, might say, and try not to cling. Try, try to let go, because everything's impermanent, right? And which seems obvious. Try not to cling, try to let go, because everything is impermanent, you can't hold on to it. And might also add, try to be kind. And that might be, as too simplistic, a little unkind putting it that way, but that's, that's kind of the conception that we might have of the Dharma. Try to always be present, because this is it. Try not to cling, try to let go, because everything is impermanent. Try to be kind, try to be nice. Or some people might have uh, a conception of the Dharma. It's, coming, it's a little bit more influenced by a stream, such as the Advaita tradition and things like that. The kind of goal, if you like, and they might not use the language of goal, the kind of goal is to somehow always be in a sense that all is one. Everything is one. Uh, or it's always be in the kind of sense of no self. There's no self. The self is... Uh, not arising or non-existent. So those are two quite common sort of very loose conceptions of what Dharma is that people uh, may have. It's quite uh, popular these days. But what if we contrast that with, with a kind of conception that I would like to um, uh, introduce and kind of um, fill out a little bit. That those uh, those sort of injunctions or perceptions uh, to see everything always as, as to see everything as all is one, or to see feel there's no self, the perception of no self, to, to be present, to not cling. All these are rather modes. They're modes of perception. What I call ways of looking. They're temporary options. In other words, one can go in and out. There's a great flexibility 
of um, the perception, the way of looking. So I can go into this way of looking and see all is one, can go into that and see different ways that, that the uh, self is empty, can go into non-clinging in different ways. They're all modes of perception, modes, temporary options of ways of looking. There's flexibility there. And what Dharma is, is the practice of this flexibility. Practicing uh, a range, a whole range of types of uh, awareness, of sensitivity, if you like, modes of awareness or sensitivity. Different modes of awareness, modes of sensitivity, again, what I call ways of looking. So that the multiplicity of perception, a, a, a really large range of perception and experience is available to us as human beings that we can actually sense. It's not an intellectual concept. We can actually perceive very differently at different times. And that's what we're practicing through all these Dharma tools and Dharma um, notions. And related to that is that there are different types and modes, if you like, also different degrees of non-clinging. So there's different ways of non-clinging, different um, uh, degrees of that. We can uh, non-cling, we can let go of clinging just a little bit, or deeper, 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 and deeper levels. So this modes and degrees of non-clinging overlaps with the um, greater range of practice of flexibility of ways of looking, of modes of awareness, sensitivity. They overlap. And through all that, through the practice of all that, and developing all that, the perceptual poss possibilities are opened. Uh, we really start to see, oh, how I look, the way I look, um, uh, conditions what I perceive. And the range of perception opens up. And we understand perception is empty. Uh, we understand the emptiness of all appearances through that. And this brings the deepest freedom. To the degree that we see that comes the, the deepest freedom the, 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 in life. But also what comes from that is further opening up. So that through seeing the emptiness, we actually open up further. And through doing these practices, we open up further our, our sense of the range of perceptual possibilities. The flexibility of perception is also open. Perception of the self, perception of the other, perception of world and cosmos. And this, so there's freedom coming out of all this. And there's also this opening and flexibility, malleability of the perceptual possibilities. And that, in a way, I mean, there are definitely limits on that, but in a way, it's infinite. There's an infinite um, range, an infinite um, multiplicity possible for us. So when we say, um, let go of clinging, or don't cling, or this or that, it's not a way of living in this, in this way of conceiving the Dharma. It's not that we're trying to move through our life without clinging. It's rather that uh, letting go of clinging is part of a range, or different ways of letting go of clinging, a part of a range of ways of looking. Quite a subtly different, but, but hugely different conception. And because there's this flexibility, there's this malleability and multiplicity of the range of perception and the range of ways of looking, 
modes of awareness, if you like, modes of sensitivity that we can practice and develop and open up. That means that Dharma is, as practice, is, is not just one track, is not just one thing. Don't cling or be present or this or that. Uh, it's not simple in that way. It's rich and complex and various. Now, in addition to all that, and as I mentioned before, we begin to recognize the necessity of fantasy, the inevitability of fantasy, and the primacy of fantasy, how much um, fantasy, imagination, mythos is woven in to our perceiving and conceiving of the self, of our psychology and that of others, of life, of beauty, and also of the Dharma, as I said, uh, which includes notions of awakening and also includes the notion of the Buddha and the historical Buddha. Now, in more recent uh, Western philosophy, this also has a, a parallel uh, in philosophy and then, and then in more recent uh, approaches to history as well. It's called the turn towards hermeneutics uh, in philosophy and later in history. It's, so really this understanding that we're always bringing, um, if you like, uh, interpretations, biases, um, ways of looking, fantasies into our perception of history. So it's not, it's not saying we can make anything up about the Buddha or historically, but it, it is saying there is no true, objectively existing single story of the Buddha, history of the Buddha. So we start to realize that it's imbued, our, our vision of the Buddha, our history of the Buddha is imbued by fantasy. And so is our, our vision and our sense of the, the Dharma and of awakening and all this stuff. And maybe um, in all this, um, for some people, they say, I'm going beyond the Dharma now. Some people say, I've gone beyond the Dharma. That's a question. Is it? Is it not? How, how is that for you? Is it okay? What does it mean? Have we gone beyond Buddhism? How am I going to relate to that? There'd be big, big uh, questions and important ones. Not necessarily easy. Okay, so just a few practical things. Um, we have five or six days here together, so <clears throat> really all we can do is uh, open some doors and point in some directions, give pointers and tips for practice. Some of you will want to explore these directions and these pointers much more. Some of you will really want to take this further. Um, and of course, you could, uh, if you're listening to this later or on, on the recording, you can take much longer to go through this material, much, much longer. Really take your time and develop it. Um, we're cramming, if you like, quite a lot of material in a short time. But related to that, it's also really important to um, realize that, okay, so we have a retreat of a certain amount of days, and it can be very easy to judge the retreat um, in terms of what experiences arise in this period of time. Um, but this is uh, not a good way, not a, a, a sensible, insightful way of, of orienting to a retreat. Um, it's not so much the experiences that are important. I mean, they are important, but they're not really what's crucial. 
what I hope we can, um, what you can prioritize um, is understanding, developing, making your own ways of working. So really taking ways of working and conceptual frameworks um, and supports from the retreat. So that's really what we should regard as our aim, a sort of digestion of uh, ways of working, a, a developing of skill in terms of meditative ways of working and also the concepts that support them. And that should be the aim rather than aiming for any experience. And that's true for any retreat. Absolutely, I would say that on any retreat, the regular insight retreat or whatever, um, meta retreat, etc. But uh, particularly here, because it's if I can learn the tools and learn my way around the um, uh, learn the ropes, as they say, uh, if I can learn that in terms of practice and and get a sense of how the conceptual frameworks might support me in the directions I want to go, then that can stay with me. The experiences uh, don't necessarily in the highs of the experiences don't necessarily stay. So really to keep uh, thinking about that's what I want to take, that's what I want to digest. Now I was wondering about offering this retreat and some of you may be listening as we go through the material and wonder, well, pff, is this very advanced? Um, the truth is I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, my experience is... For some people, it might be that certain other elements uh, need to be in place before they can work well with the imaginal practices, um, and for some people, not. So it, it seems quite individual. So really, the answer is, is it to, to the question, is it advanced? I, I would say so far, not necessarily. It depends. I am wondering, more generally these days, about a kind of, loosely, about a kind of curriculum. What would be the kind of... Um, tools and meditative skills that need to be developed to really give a person the best platform for their practice to move and, and keep expanding and open up into more and more adventure and possibility. That's something I'm thinking about anyway. But I don't know uh, if, if this material is necessarily advanced. It's an interesting thing too, because typical insight retreat would say, on the first morning, we'd say, okay, now um, concentrate on your breath, and if your mind wanders, come back to being with your breath. Something like that. And in a way, if we hear something like that, it sounds very simple. It sounds like that's probably the simplest possible instruction you could give. Just what does it feel like when you breathe? When the mind wanders, come back to that feeling, those sensations. So it sounds like the simplest. It's certainly the most familiar for most people in, in, in the wider culture these days. Um, and it's very easy to understand that instruction. It's very easy instruction to understand. It's also easy to understand the why of that instruction. Why would you do that? Because almost no one anymore uh, in our culture, whether they meditate or not, needs convincing that... Um, focus is a good thing. The ability to focus the mind and keep it focused, focus the attention. Almost no one needs convincing that calm at times is a good thing. And almost no one needs convincing that it's important to be present. Uh, and there's a lot of emphasis now in, in, in a sort of pop culture about being present with the moment and all that. So it's, it's very, very familiar, that kind of instruction. It's very simple and seems easy to understand, easy to understand why we would even say that. 
But actually, as a teacher, I have to tell you, if you don't realize it already, that for most people it's really not easy to do. Be with the breath. Concentrate on the breath. It's actually, most people really, really struggle with that simple instruction. And we don't often, in many retreats, elaborate much on it because we move on to other stuff about being more with the general experience very quickly. And so a person kind of concludes, if they stay uh, meditating, they kind of conclude, conclude, I'm crap at that. I'm pretty useless. My concentration is rubbish. I don't know how many people have told me that in the past. Uh, oh well, they sort of accept it, uh, and they just, that's okay, you know, whatever. Um, whereas, uh, unfamiliar instructions that we might uh, be going through on this retreat, unfamiliar practice, they may be harder to grasp and even understand why we're doing them at first, but they may not necessarily be harder to do. So, we'll find out. Um, but don't automatically assume that they are harder um, just because another kind of instruction sounds simpler or sounds more familiar or it's easier to make sense of given the sort of um, prevalent frameworks uh, conception that we bring to practice. So over the days, another uh, practical thing, over the days we'll be unfolding different teachings and instructions. And uh, like I said, in regards to this uh, talk, introductory talk, I'm going to mention things and then um, return to elaborate them um, in fuller detail. So there's uh, quite a lot of material, and we, but we'll keep cycling around certain themes, that uh, many of which I've actually mentioned already um, uh, in this talk, although I realize not enough for you to actually fully understand just from this talk. But there, there will be this kind of um, uh, elaborating, returning to elaborate a bit more, etc., of certain key themes and directions. In the first few days, um, we're going to um, almost solely explore and develop practices in, in relation to what I call the energy body. And I'll explain that um, tomorrow morning. Um, but we're also going to keep that as a practice, this uh, sensitivity to the energy body um, throughout the retreat. So the first few days we'll focus almost exclusively on it, and there's, I'll explain why. There's very good reasons why. Um, but it's going to be something that's actually going to form the basis of the whole retreat. So if again, if you're listening to this on recording and you want to go through this material at home, I really, really encourage you to stay, linger even longer, um, developing your um, practice uh, with regard to the energy body and the different ways that we're going to talk about it. And let that really be the basis um, for the imaginal practices as we introduce them. And I will keep emphasizing that uh, as we go through the retreat. You may uh, want to uh, get or, or keep a notebook um, Certainly of the teachings, there'll be lots of teachings, and a lot of it will be quite new for many of you. Um, and the practice instructions and practice tips. So it can be helpful just to jot them down so you have them and you can refer back to them if you like to do that sort of thing. And then also working with images can be, um, some people find it really helpful and just very interesting to keep a notebook um, of the um, imaginal uh, work that they're doing, the different images that come up and things come back again, etc. And that can be a very beautiful thing to do. So it's up to you, but some people will 
um, want to keep a notebook of the different and 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 uh, keep tabs, uh, record the different threads of what's going on here. Okay, one very practical last thing, uh, just before we end. Um, slow down if you're you're here or on retreat for these days, and just an encouragement to. Um, slow down as you're walking around the house. Slow down uh, at least a little bit, if not quite a lot, and to see if you can be more gentle in your movements. Um, a, there's no reason to go fast when you're on retreat. We're not in really a hurry here. But why am I emphasizing this? Um, it's certainly not to dampen your spirit or your vivaciousness or your energy. Absolutely not. And it's not also, as in some retreats, for instance, Mahasi-style retreat um, or other others where they say, slow down um, because because we w- uh, they want to kind of put under close closer scrutiny, a kind of microscopic analysis of the sensations of the body, etc., as it moves. So we're not slowing down for that reason. On this retreat, we're interested in a different kind of precision of attention. Uh, so it's not a microscopic analysis to sen- of sensations. I'll explain this more tomorrow. But we're, we're interested in a different kind of subtlety of attention, a different kind of precision on, on, in, in this retreat. And going a little bit more slowly, moving a little bit more slowly, moving a little bit more gently in the way you open and close doors and handle plates and whatever it is, um, that allows, it will support um, the kind of quality of awareness and sensitivity to the energy body that I'm going to introduce tomorrow. So as you go through, just go through the retreat and the time, just being a little bit more slow, a little bit more gentle in the movements will really support that kind of sensitivity to the whole body and and particularly to the the feeling of energy in the body. Um, What I call the energy body, because that, as I mentioned, will, will be a very important thread through retreat. It's actually an important basis for everything that we're going to do in, in lots of different ways. And a skill with the energy body, an awareness, a sensitivity to the energy body, as I'll explain, is can become, over time, a profound resource to us as human beings in many, many different ways and in regards to many different practices and directions of practice. So just as much as you can, really an encouragement to slow down and be gentle because it's really going to support um, uh, the investigations that we're going to be doing and the explorations and practice we're doing over, over the time of the retreat. Okay.